I'm Tony Perkins, and this is More Than a Game, the podcast that takes you beyond the box score and tells the Arizona sports stories you've never heard. On this episode, how baseball makes a close-knit community even closer. But first, a sport with hundreds of years of history. This weekend marks the start of the 2023 USA Fencing National Championships. The tournament takes place in Phoenix this year and brings hundreds of the country's top fencers to Arizona. While the study of swordsmanship is thousands of years old, the oldest information on fencing itself dates to 12th century German manuscript. To learn more about the fast-paced sport with a lot of history, I headed to Still Point Fencing in Tucson, where I met two instructors, Nick Going and Jay Fowler. When I arrived on a weekday morning, the room was quiet and empty. So I asked Nick how things normally are when class is in session. We get anywhere from 15 to 25, usually high school kids with, uh, with me. It's pretty loud. Uh, I know when parents come here, they have an adjustment period of hearing the score boxes like the weapons clashing and it, it's definitely that adjustment period very busy lots of yelling um, but also very fun i run our adult program and on monday wednesday and friday we have an average of 20 adults with an average age of 29 in here and we warm up we do some footwork, we do some drills, and then we spend about an hour stabbing one another. And <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Well, Nick, how did you learn fencing? How, did, how, did you, how, how old were you when you started looking at this and thinking, hey, this is pretty cool? I tried a lot of other sports and it didn't, they didn't stick. I didn't have the coordination and just didn't enjoy them. And it turned out, um, I'd always watched the movie Princess Bride. When I was strong enough, I dedicate my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. With my family every Christmas, and my dad used to wood fence, like pretend fence with wrapping paper tubes. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! So he said, hey, I saw fencing. Um, at a summer camp at the U of A and recommended that I tried it. So I was 13 and I tried it and just really loved it. It, it wasn't, I thought I was going to just find something that I be, would be good at. I actually was not, but I enjoyed it enough that I wanted to keep, keep doing it and work at it. All right, now let's get over to what the sport is like uh, to, uh, to participate in and to, to learn. Now it's a combat sport. It has an emphasis on speed and quickness and footwork. Which of these things are the most important? None of them. Using your brain is most important. Somebody that is fencing smart can beat somebody who's faster and stronger and has better footwork. It's hard, but it can be done. And as Nick and I are, are aging, we're getting to do that more and more against teenagers that are faster and stronger than we are. But I think that the teenagers in the state would report that we are quite effective at that. And 
if you are smart and you make good decisions and you outthink your opponent, you can often beat them even when they're faster or stronger than you. I would agree with Jay, um, but if I had to choose from your list, I would choose footwork. Because I think putting yourself in the right place at the right time is, uh, we, we call that distance in fencing. And distance is one of our central tenets. Uh, it, everything stems from it. If you're not where you need to be, you can't hit or you can't get away. So it's very important that your, your distance is correct. That's how we, and we use footwork to, to manipulate the distance and trick our opponent into thinking that they're leading us. I sometimes use the analogy with my students that it's like your partner dancing, but instead of showing your partner what you want them to do, you're trying to trick them to walking onto your sword. <laughs> I've heard it described a little bit as boxing with sticks. I don't know if that's that accurate or not, but it is something where you're attacking and you're defending sort of at the same time or alternating. Is that a good analogy or how would you describe it? I think boxing is a, is a great analogy for uh, fencing because boxing, and I've taken some boxing classes, which is kind of where my answer is coming from, but I think the conditioning is very similar. I think the focus on footwork is similar and also that there's different um, body sizes and strengths, abilities, tactics that you're using. Of course, boxing has weight classes to make that even, and we don't have that in fencing. We have a really cool ability to fence women, fence men, fence different ages. We do have age classes, however. Most tournaments, though, are open. So you'll have men and women from 13 to, let's see, the oldest fencer in Arizona right now who's regularly showing up is 74. and that 74-year-old will be out there beating 13-year-olds and everyone in between pretty regularly. Sorry, I'm just curious. Is that Charlie? Charlie. Okay. Charlie is slightly <laughs> older than Tom. So boxing makes me think of one other thing that I wanted to say, which is you described fencing as a combat sport, which I think is accurate, but it has an interesting thing that most combat sports don't, which is that the concussion risk is exceedingly low. So concussions are a increasingly big deal these days because we're increasingly aware of the problems that they cause and fencing has such a low risk of concussion that it has never shown up in any of the studies on it they did two studies on olympic sports tracking injuries and in neither one was there any incidence of concussion in fencing and it is so rare that in 18 years of fencing I have heard of one time that it happened in the United States that somebody got a concussion fencing. And I think that as awareness about what a big deal concussions are grows, that will be an increasing draw to fencing. I think a fun fact from that one of those Olympic studies is that one sport that is more dangerous than fencing is actually ping pong or table tennis because they have a higher rate of rolled ankles. <laughs> and that is, that's a common injury, one of the most common injuries you might experience in, in fencing. It may appear to those who don't know the sport that uh, somebody's getting stabbed all the time or trying to avoid getting stabbed all the time. And that makes it look unsafe. What do you say about that? Yeah, that's a, that is fair. I understand that it, it's a, you know, a martial art, so the ideas about martial arts come through. But with the protection gear that we have, uh, actually highly regulated. I think, are you grabbing some? 
the equipment is designed in a way that you have fail safes to protect you. You wear multiple layers of material that can protect you up to 800 newtons of force. That has to be tested at every event. Um, your gloves are tested, your, what else, your mask, of course. Um, I know, fun fact, Jay's mask was run over by a car. Yes, my mask got run over by a truck, and if my head had been inside of it, I would have been fine. He still uses the mask. Yes, it's been like eight years, and I still use that mask. It's very slightly dented on the side from the truck running it over. Well, Jay, now you've got a piece of equipment here right now, and it you know, looks like a basic sword. What is it really called? This is an epee. The blade is one meter long, and then there's a couple inches of grip on the other end of it. There's a bell guard, which is a small shield that is between the grip and the blade. So when you're holding it by the grip, the bell guard is protecting your hand, and then the blade is extending out from your hand, one meter, to a tip, which is a small button that's on the end. And if you apply enough force, which in this case is 750 grams of weight, you would depress the button, and if you're hooked into a scoring system, you would get a point. Is this pretty much a regulation um, size and weight and everything? If What you're holding right now is the same thing that uh, uh, a collegiate fencer would uh, have, a professional uh, competition fencer would have? Yes. This is an extremely normal setup for any high-level fencer. This is a probably the single most popular type of grip and the single most popular type of blade at NCAA, at the Olympics, at any high level of fencing, you will see a lot of exactly this setup. That's because it works pretty well, it's a good setup. One thing I wanted to say that is why I brought this over is I think the biggest contributor to modern advances in safety in fencing is the blades, which is that they're not sharp at all. They have a flat end, they have blunt sides, and if they break, it's a type of steel called marriaging steel that breaks flat. And so it doesn't have sharp edges at any point. And so it's very difficult to cut or pierce anybody with one of these. Like if you wanted to do damage to something, you would be much better off with like a lamp than this, because this is designed <laughs> to not be able to hurt things or people. With younger age groups, which I work a lot with, you will have different regulations for the weapons. They're the exact same materials. Um, but the length of the blade can be different. And so the younger you are, you will use a shorter blade. We call them size zeros up to size five. And it's really just a matter of inches off of the blade. But that makes a big difference in the weight of the overall blade and the way that a student could manipulate the point and control it. As they get older, they'll graduate to a size five, which is what Jay is holding and then they'll be on a size five for the rest of their, their fencing career. Is fencing easy or is it hard? Well, that question is hard. I think that I would say that fencing is hard to get good at in the sense that it has a steep learning curve, but is easy to do. Like however much you know, whether you know a lot or a little, you can go out on a fencing strip and you can fence. And you can practice what you know and you can do what you know and you can find the areas that you need to know more. And actually getting better is challenging. You have to work at it. But to actually do the sport, to go out and fence and have fun is easy. What's the most rewarding thing about it? 
I mean, I really like winning. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I also enjoy that, but, but <laughs> a sense of community is cool. Even though I said it was an individual sport, um, the memories I've made traveling to events, uh, just doing things, experiencing new states, getting to you know try their food with your friends and then go compete the next day when you've had an you know, entirely too many cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. That's a fencing story I have, and that made my <laughs> tournament the day after uh, more challenging. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, change it. I would keep that up, and I'm I'm looking forward to more memories traveling and experiencing things with the friends I've made through fencing. And I want to say that Nick's answer was better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to the description, I wanted to try it. I donned the headgear. Put the chin in here first. Yeah, yeah. The protective garment, the gloves, and picked up the blade. Okay. Jay Fowler served as the coach. Our feet are at right angles, and about the width of our shoulders are between our feet. We bend our knees just a little bit. Mm -hmm. We have our arm up. And to move, we put our heel on the ground, and then we push with the back foot. And then we're back in the same position. This is on guard. This is the position you always come back to. Mm -hmm. You reach with your front heel. You push with your back foot. You're back on guard. Looking through the mask, occupying the stance. It's like lining up for the snap in a football game. Okay. Waiting right. for the instant that will demand a lot of physical energy and mental fitness. It's very much a sprint sport where we're on guard, we're not moving, the referee says fence, and boom, all your energy, all your energy, and then halt. And then you walk back to the line, you come back on guard, you wait, Ready, fence, and you go, and all your energy. And it is intense while you're moving, but generally speaking, each touch is going to be 10, 20, maybe 30 seconds. And so the time that you have to maintain that intensity is relatively short. And then it was my turn to try a match for real. You step onto a narrow, regulation-sized strip and face your opponent. The two of you stand about six feet apart. Each fencer's blade is connected at the base by a long cord that stretches to a scoring machine. The blunt tip of the blade contains a tiny button. When you make contact... That's your light going off. So that green light okay. is you. All right. So if that goes on, you get a point. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we'll be hearing that sound. On guard. Ready? Fence. You move forward in a straight line to attack. Halt. Touch left. Go backward to defend. Okay. Okay. And lunge Fence. to try and score a point. Sometimes. Halt. Double touch. That's a double touch. So we hit within a 25th of a second of one another. Amazing. Ready, defense. We traded points. And then I managed to tie the score. Oh. That's right. This is 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> There's a word for this. It's called labelle. So labelle is when both fencers are one point away from winning. So because we're going to five and we're both at four, whoever scores the next point wins. So we're at labelle. And traditionally when you're at labelle, you salute one another because uh, okay. it must be a good bout for you to have gotten to that point. <laughs> so we salute. Okay. Ready, fence. Don't lose, Jay. Oh. All right, excellent. The practice match was over, and those short bursts of concentration, the fast action and reaction, were draining. 
I like the physical intensity. Like at the end of tournaments, I am completely exhausted, which is partially a reflection on my fitness. But honestly, I think most people are completely exhausted at the end of tournaments. However much you've got to give, you give it all. In an analogy with boxing, wrestling, or other combat sports, fencing pits your skills, knowledge, and experience directly against that of your opponent. At the end of the day, on that day, in that place, one of you was better, and that one wins. And it can never be easy because people are good at wanting to win and good at figuring things out. And anyone that you fence will be a new puzzle that is going to try to solve you. And that is a new challenge every day. And maybe it's somebody that you've beaten the last 10 times, but by beating them 10 times, they've gotten a lot of information about you. And they're going to come in with a new plan and a new thing to try, and maybe they beat you the 11th time. It's a lot of fun. Win or lose, you learn with every lunge. In a small community, a successful sports program can become the pride of the city. That esteem often stays in place from team to team within the program. And if it lasts long enough, generation to generation within the community's families. Katya Mendoza tells us the story of her uncle and cousin's experience in Nogales' baseball world. In the next installment of our series, looking at border communities and baseball. By now you've learned how baseball fits for the Latino community in Nogales and how it takes several generations to create a lasting program. I got to catch up with my tío Ali and cousin Isak, who graduated from Nogales High School in 2015. He was a part of the state runner-up team during the 2014 season. My tío coached him for more than 10 years. He said his dad used to coach him and that he wanted to pay it forward. I asked my cousin who was a pitcher about his experience playing for my tío and the favelas. He says he mostly worked with OJ Favela, who he said was always straight to the point, which he liked. Throughout most of Isak's baseball career, he played with some of the same teammates for almost a decade. My tío says it was beneficial for them to play together year-round on a travel ball team, and that it was the generation that came after my cousin's class that really skyrocketed. After Isaac's generation, I think that's when they really took off. I mean, two state titles, the three appearances, three appearances they last the last one in 12 innings or whatever. But I think because of what the parents did after us, that's what really helped out Nogales baseball. And then once they got to high school, they were like, here you go, coach. Here's a group. You know, they're set up, blah, blah, blah. And I think that really, that's what make, made them excel. And then just OJ just completely, uh, you know, they handed him the package and OJ just took it to another level. So it was good that they were already taught the game, but OJ really like molded them again or whatever. I mean, it was just like a perfect program. And even right now, because the parents that are coming behind them, now you're starting to see the same thing. You got to see that they got to play together. They got to keep them in together all, the, all year long. It's been working. It's been working. 
It's all about chemistry and knowing what your teammates can and cannot do. It's the complete package. You get them ready through elementary, middle school, it's part of the deal. And then middle school teachers or coaches, they kind of set them up and then, you know, they get to high school and they're like, okay, here you go. You don't have to teach them once they get to high school. They're already well taught, well groomed, and, um, you know, OJ takes it from there. I mean, he's done a great job for the program. My tío says it all depends on who shapes the young kids that are coming up. I asked him how that has made this high school program even more competitive. Just because the success that they have. Once you get to high school, I think it's a tough choice. Who do you move up? Who stays down? There's a lot of talent down here. Because everybody's been playing at a young age. And I think that's what makes it really difficult once you get to the high school. I asked my cousin if tryouts were even tryouts. You, you play with the same people you're around, and that's pretty much the team that's going to be. So tryouts weren't really tryouts. My cousin and Theo told me that these guys start playing when they're six or seven years old. During Isaac's junior year, he says about seven or eight players were recruited by colleges, and about three during his senior year, himself included. He went on to play for Pima Community College after he graduated. They both say that winning has a lot to do with it. Scouts and recruiters, all of a sudden, they have an interest why this school is winning. So they show up at your ball games and they talk to the coach and like, who's here, who's there, blah, blah, blah. I want to see season stats and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I think since 2014, 2013, I think there's been a, an abundance of kids that have gone on to play next level. Division two, Division three, Division one, couple MLB drafts, but I, I think that has a lot to do with it. While it's a no-brainer that playing for a club team can help an athlete's chances of playing beyond high school, not everyone can afford it. So down here, we always make it affordable for everybody. Uh, there's no such thing that a kid cannot travel. When I had the travel ball team, everybody who had the talent and the will was on the club team. We never made it a point where it was a money issue. Other parents could pitch in. We would get sponsors, we would get this, we would get that. No kid was left behind because they couldn't afford it. And I think that's why a lot of kids, when they finish their club team, uh, they're still really connected to their coaches because I think they really appreciate. Once they grow up, they're like, you know what? How did I do it? And they're, they kind of figure it out like, oh, maybe I wasn't, my parents couldn't do it, but I was never left behind because I couldn't afford it. So, and that's what, I think really helps out Nogales as a community. You know, we would do fundraisers, we would do this, we would do that. And I think, you know, a lot of kids even got the opportunity to go play college and this and that because they were able to get on the travel ball team. It was never money first. Even right now, I think it's, if somebody can't afford it, somebody will pick it up. But I don't think that a kid, oh, he can't go because he hasn't paid enough. That was never an issue. It was always, there's 15 players, all 15 can go. This speaks volumes of the culture in the community. I traveled a lot with a baseball team with Nogales High School. You play one game outside and you see so many fans. You play in Nogales and it probably goes four or five times more when you play a home game. And I think that really helps out the baseball team. You know, when you look up in the stands, City of Nogales does a great job allowing the high school team to play in, in their ballpark. 
the stands pretty much full every home game. It helps out the home team. I think it intimidates the visiting team. I traveled with them for nine years, and not once did I ever go to a visiting ballpark and saw what, what I get to see every home game. I asked my cousin to describe that experience from the pitcher's mound. You do get more, let's say, how could I say, like energy from the, from the fans. I mean, you just get more excited to play compared to where we do go to the road and you see like little to no fans. It's not the same, like, you don't get the same excitement compared to when there is fans in the stands. My tío even told me about how some players would fake injuries during away games just so they could play at home. I mean, I, I'd probably do the same thing. I wouldn't want to pitch somewhere where there's 50 fans compared to three, 400 fans, you know, so it was understandable. Mm-hmm. And being born down here, I mean, you know everybody, great community. I think it was just great. To know my cousin growing up was to know baseball. It was surprising to me when he said that he had always thought baseball was too slow for him, that one of the reasons he became a pitcher was to make the game go by faster. He officially retired about five years ago now. It was the end of an era and surprising for all of us because he had gotten an offer to transfer to the D1 program at Florida A&M. I just lost interest in it, I guess. It was just time to, I knew it was done. My arm was hurting, my elbow pain, so that was part of it too. My tío said he was surprised, but understood why. I knew that he was a young adult, and I told him, you know what, it's your decision, so I respect it. And I just said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And then after uh, talking to a couple of my friends who played college baseball, they said, when you know, you know. So that made it kind of easier for me. So I, I respected his decision. If you're a former athlete, in hindsight, what have you taken away from your experience? My cousin and Theo said since their sports careers ended, things like discipline, respect, camaraderie, and of course friendships have stayed with them. There's been set a standard where the goal is to win championships, and I think that's going to continue to happen. Coach OJ. I think he's been to four state finals in seven years, whereas other coaches have not made it once. He has a good program. He knows what he's doing, has a ton of help, you know, community and stuff like that. I think he's going to be all right. A lot of talent down here. And I think even the younger kids, uh, when you walk into uh, Memorial Stadium down in Nogales, they got about eight plaques of all the past winners state champs and I think that really motivates them so I think that's really good for them. You know how they say it takes a village to raise a kid? The same has applied to this program. Remember coach OJ saying he's the last step? That there's so much more that goes on behind the scenes that goes into these kids success. Little things such as carpooling from Nogales all the way to Phoenix to making sure that the kids eat every meal after a game together. It's kind of like a brotherhood. The little things like that have really made a difference in this program and seem to be working. For more than a game, I'm Katia Mendoza. And that's it for this episode of More Than a Game. Join us next time as we head to one of the largest professional tournaments for a sport that boomed during the pandemic. 
This show is produced and mixed by Zach Ziegler. Our news director is Christopher Cano. Our logo was designed by A.C. Swedberg. Thanks to our marketing team for their help in launching this podcast. This show is part of the AZPM podcast family. You can find all of our podcasts, news, and video production at azpm.org. I'm Tony Perkins. See you next time.